This is a Saddleback Church podcast. Well, good morning, uh, Saddleback. And if, <laughs> thank you. If you're joining us uh, from any of our other campuses or extensions, uh, online welcome as well. Man, I love uh, Pastor Andy and Stacy. I love our leadership. And uh, it is such an honor to finally be here and call this home, right? The last time I came here, I spoke as a, uh, thank you. Last time I came, I spoke as a guest minister, but they treated me so well. It's what my mother used to say, right, whenever we'd bring strays. He was like, you can pet strays, but don't feed them because they'll never leave. So <laughs> they took such good care of me. I was like, well, I'm, I'm bringing everybody from Texas. So, but it is, it is such an honor to be here and sharing uh, week three of a phenomenal series, right, The Lost Art of Friendship. Now, I'm really excited because I get to share and introduce you guys to some of the coolest people that I know. So this right here is Ronnie Brock. Ronnie Brock is a senior uh, leader at World Vision my former boss, Ronnie Brock, lives on 400 acres, right? He is a farmer. He's an oil man. He's from Oklahoma. That means he is a Sooner. I'm a Longhorn. And uh, as a matter of fact, yeah, that still hurts. But, but as a matter of fact, this right here is really who Ronnie Brock is. Because the truth of the matter is there's people, right, that we all know, but they manifest different. Now, Ronnie Brock is one of those people who have given themselves over to debasement, and they are taking you along with them. If you go to dinner with Ronnie and you're wearing a jacket, if you go to the bathroom, when you come back, he's wearing that same jacket, right? Ronnie is one of those things, like, we used to travel all over the world. One time we went to Kenya, and um, I still remember on the flight, I boarded first, and I'm sitting down, so I see him coming down the aisle, and Ronnie Brock has this look on his face. I'm like, oh my gosh, what is he going to do? He gets to where I'm sitting, and he goes, like, loud enough for the entire flight to hear. He's like, wait. Reward Samanda. Your reward Samanda. Then he's like, hey, everybody, this man is a true patriot. And then he's like, hey, your interview on Larry King was one of the best interviews I'd ever seen. Hey, let's give it up for this guy. And the entire flight starts clapping for me. If I could blush, I would have. It was <laughs> the longest flight of I kept my head down the whole time. And people kept asking me, so what do you do? Like nothing. I do not, but that's Ronnie Brock though, right? Ronnie is also the type of person that um, he tells his children, if you meet them, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. He tells them, I was like, Ronnie, give me kid advice. He's like, all right, here's what I tell my kids. Safety last. The worst decisions make the best stories. And I mean, they've gone on to be the bravest people in every, but that's who Ronnie Brock is. I still, I'm gonna give you a, a few more. I still remember uh, on the pri previous flight, so we're running late because we're in Africa, and time is a fluid concept in Africa, and you have all the fun in the world. So we're running late. We get there, but Ronnie's traveled a lot, so he gets to check in first. So he goes to the counter, and he gives him. He looks at me at the back of the line. He's like, this guy's not going to make it. So immediately, he starts screaming over the whole airport. He's like, cousin, 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 come up here. And then he looks at the guy at the counter. He's like, hey, can I bring my cousin up here? The guy's like, yeah, sure. Family, yeah, you, you can check in with family. He's like, come up here, cousin. So I go through and I show up with all of my melanin. And now everybody's looking, going, how are these two related? So Ronnie looks around, he's like, 
our grandfather was in the war. And so <laughs> everybody finds that amusing except the guy who's doing a, uh, the, the check-in. Man, that is who Ronnie Brock uh, was. But then there was a moment, though, to where I uh, was about to have my first son, and I'm freaking out, like every first-time dad. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, what if, what if I'm not a good dad? What if, what if my son never grows attached to me? Like, what, what if I, I raise the next Darth Vader? You know what I'm saying? I am freaking out. So I call Ronnie, and I'm like, Ronnie, man, I am freaking out. I start telling him all these things. It's a moment. I'm really having a moment. I'm like, hey, kid's about to come. We're at the hospital. And every insecurity that has ever plagued me is manifesting in that moment. And so I'm talking and talking, and Ronnie's on the other line, and then all of a sudden he slams his hand on the desk. He's like, man, why is it that there's nothing for the dads? It's always about the moms, man. You know what? And then the phone goes, goes dead. And so I'm like, oh, you know what? We just got disconnected. So I kind of do um, go in, and I get ready for the process, and I'm like, okay, breathing exercises. This kid is coming any moment. And then uh, about three hours later, I hear someone's like, hey, uh, there's a family member for you, rewards about. I'm like, no, no, my family's not here. Like, yeah, there's someone. He says he's your cousin. I'm like, cousin? I don't have any cousins. And I'm like, sure, let him in. And sure enough, here comes Ronnie Brock. He's carrying my favorite barbecue. He's carrying a case of Dr. Pepper. And I don't know what time he did it, but he has just driven three hours from Oklahoma. And he has made a shirt which says, rewards daddy doula. And he shows up. And this is what he says. He's like, hey, everybody, the mom has a doula, but I am here to be your doula. And in that moment, I see the true value of what I call a surprising friendship. Nobody could have put this guy, late 60s, Oklahoma, all that, nobody could have pegged me and him and said, these two are going to be best friends. But the moment he was, he has been able to be there for me in the moments when I was the most insecure. He's been a source of the craziest joy. And it left me wondering, what are we missing out on if we don't lean into the surprising friendships that God has for us with other people? Maybe because they don't look like us or maybe because they don't think like us and uh, maybe because they are not as introverted as we are. But every single one of us can speak to a moment where God used a surprising friendship to really and truly be a blessing to you. So my conversation today, although it may border on diversity and touch all those other things, but what I really want to talk about is the beauty that happens when God connects hearts in what I call surprising friendships. Speaking of a surprising friendship, this man right here is Dr. Patrick Mbande. Everybody say Mbande. Good, y'all got some Africanism. We're going to get it wrong just fine, right? This man has a PhD, right? He's a doctor. This man has a, a tool master. I mean, this man has more degrees than a thermometer, right? This man has planted 58 churches around the world, which are still alive today, and he still has oversight over Y'all, this man is a Jedi, y'all. The force is strong in this man. But this is who he is. But this is him in his element right here. His heart bleeds for missions. He lives to pour out to different people. 
And so I remember one time I go to a pastor conference, and I love pastor conferences and church planters because my heart bleeds for that. Because anywhere there has been a, a vibrant and healthy expression of the local church, incredible societal transformation has happened in those moments. So I go to this uh, conference, and I start sharing with them my heart for the continent of Africa and my heart for the kingdom and the church. And I'm speaking, and uh, it was well received because afterwards this one guy comes up to me, and this is what he says. He goes, hey, the things that you were talking about, the things that you were passionate about, there's actually a man called Dr. Patrick Mbande who's doing those things. I mean, he is legit. He's planning 58. So he tells me all the things that he does, and immediately I'm like, no, no. There's no way he'd want to connect with me. Like, I haven't done anything. He's like, well, hey, if you never ask, the answer is always no, right? You just never know. And so he's like, hey, reach out to him this way. So I reach out to this man, and he's gracious enough. He picks up. We have a conversation, and we're asking all this question. And after that, he's like, hey, you know what? I don't know why, but I'm going to give you my, 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 my personal number. And anytime you call, I will pick up. And what do I do? I think he means it. And I keep calling this man every other day. But every time I call, he picks up. And we start to have this conversation, and we develop this surprising friendship. I mean, this man that I look up, every single time I, I get around him, I get giddy like a little girl. I'm fangirling the whole time and everything. But it develops because I begin to see past the things that he's done and into who he truly is. And we forge a legitimate friendship. And about six months later, right, now we feel like we're becoming friends. So he asked about me. He's like, so tell me your story. I tell him my story. He's like, hey, you went to Christ for the Nations? No way. I went to Christ for the Nations. As a matter of fact, my daughter goes to Christ for the Nations and has a segue, and he just casually, nonchalantly says, if you're ever in Dallas, you should connect with her. And so I did what every self-respecting man of God does. I went and I stalked her on social media, and I was like, hmm, I like what I see. So basically, Dr. Patrick is now my father-in-law. But, <laughs> and because of that, this is my family, y'all. This is uh, my wife. My son, Silo, that means little lion. His favorite pastime in the world is pulling my hair and never fails uh, to amuse him. But this was also the result of a surprising friendship because when I started, I mean, I didn't have enough game to hit on that. I mean, you guys can tell that. I don't have enough game for that, you know what I'm saying? But so I started in the friend zone, right? Like every self, no shame in it. I, I mean, she was put together. I was just coming out of Bible school. So coming out of ministry, I mean, into, so I'm coming out of Bible school into ministry, means you're broke, basically. And this woman had it. I mean, she, had, she was up getting ready to buy a house. I was in between banks, you know what I'm talking about? Like, uh, she and her friends would vacation in Bora Bora. I was just getting poorer, poorer, you know? It, it was, but what it was is I was just like, somebody told me, Ronnie Brock told me, he's like, if you don't have it, marry it. So I didn't have fashion, so I married fashion. I didn't have good credit, so I married good credit. And now your boy's right here. But listen, <laughs> the truth... The truth of the matter, though, is we would be blown away if we truly leaned into what God does with surprising friendships. The truth of the matter is, yes, there's merit and virtue to the people that look like us and think like us. But the truth of the matter is, if, if they're around us, then they probably have access to the same resources and the same networks that we have access to. But every meaningful thing that's ever happened in my life was when God took somebody that had no business being friends with me and made us the best of friends. As a matter of fact, the reason I'm standing here calling Saddleback family is because a friend of mine, Todd, he's over there, right? Man from California invites a man from Zimbabwe to London 
where a man from Texas becomes really good friends with me, and then a couple from the Bay Area, all of us formed there. And what we didn't know was through those surprising friendships, God was going to do something incredible. And if you take nothing away from my conversation, it is the surprising thing that happens when you lean into surprising friendships. But if you think about it, though, should it really be a surprise? Because the truth of the matter is it was God's idea all along. As a matter of fact, if we go back to the book of Genesis, right, Genesis 1, 26, we notice something pretty interesting. The book of Genesis says, and God created man, he said, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness and let them have dominion. And right there, it shows us something fundamental, crucial, and important about who God is. As a matter of fact, I'm going to talk about two of those things. But it says, let us, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. And basically what that means is we are the effect and God is the cause. And the cause will always, um, sorry, the effect will always mirror the cause. That means what is fundamentally true about who God is, is fundamentally true about who we are as humanity. Regardless of our religion, our color, our context, our socioeconomic status, what is fundamentally true of who God is, is true of who we are. For example, right, right there, it says God said, let us, plural, right? And so that essentially means God is Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, three distinct persons. But when we think about it, when we deconstruct it, that means God has always been a community. God has always existed in community. And then he makes us in his image and according to his likeness. And therefore, as human beings, we will always crave community. I don't care how uh, introverted you think you are. 2020 showed us that we all need each other. And because of that, uh, we are people that always gather around uh, each other and we form tribes. We're very tribal beings. We're communal beings. Because, and that's essentially what Pastor Katie was talking about. When you have somebody that sits with you and that's a good friend, we gather around those people and we form friendships and deep bonds, deep communal bonds. Why do we do that? Because this was God's idea in the first place. God is the cause and we're the effect. And the second thing that we glean from this particular scripture is the simple fact that the, uh, the value of the creator will always be dominant in their creation. The values of the creator will always be dominant in their creation. You can look at any artist or creator's work and tell what they value. Right. For example, I was just kind of, I found out this guy, like, let's call him Beard Guy, right? Uh, this guy's name is, his name is Monet. Not me, my beard isn't that. There we go, that guy, right? I mean, when you look at him as manly as it gets, but I found out that in the last 30 years of his career, all this man did was paint water lilies. 250 water lilies for 30 years. And the first time I heard it, I was like, oh my goodness, who's buying all this stuff? Where's his wife? So because my wife, if I tell three jokes in a row, she's like, okay, you got to start something new. You got to do, you know, so, but, but, but you can see his value for, for, for water lilies and everything in his creation. And the same thing is fundamentally true of who God is. If you look at every aspect of creation, what you see is diversity. Everything that God creates is diversity. 
even within a particular like species, you will find that even if it's fish, how there's different types of fish. Even if it's humans, there's beauty in our diversity. So there's a unity that surrounds it, but then within that unity, there's always diversity. So before it was a social construct, before it was cool within our community, diversity had always been God's idea. So he makes us as people who come together, but he makes us diverse so that fully, when we fully come together and we work together and we love together, we see the full manifestation of who he truly is. And when we think about it, that's exactly what it is when it comes to the church, right? When it comes to the church, which is God's uh, primary expression of how he wanted to do the things that we're enjoying right now uh, from the church, right? So in Genesis 1, God creates incredible diversity, including us, in his diverse image. And then the first time we see the church fully expressive, fully alive, right, the epitome of the church is in Acts 2. And Acts 2, 5, 6 says this. Listen, it's the first big multi-ethnic megachurch. And Acts 2 says, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And then this is the church in its most glorious manifestation. But then we go to the book of Revelation at the end of all time when all things are perfect. And we see a picture of the church, the bride, the body. You see how it's all talking about all those terms of unity. And this is how we see the church. And he says, after these things I looked and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb and clothed with white robes and with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So his original intent and design in the blueprint is diversity and unity. Then the church, in the fullest expression in Acts 2, when it gets an outpouring of the spirit of unity, which is the Holy Spirit, it looks like this. And at the end, when we're all gathered together, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, united by the work that Jesus has done under his righteousness, it's always been God's idea. So what do we miss out on when we choose to stand on the outside looking in when we choose to stay within our bubbles and our places and our spheres of comfort, looking into the incredible beauty that could be ours if we lean into surprising friendships. But, but listen, I understand it. I get it. Because remember, uh, homogeneity or, or the people that you know is the most natural sort order. There's something that magnetically draws us to people that think like us, that we, we don't have to explain ourselves and we have inside jokes and, and all of that. So because of that, as humans, we stayed in our communal tribes and we became tribal in our thinking, in our expression, and in our interaction until just Jesus comes and completely shatters this paradigm. How many of you guys know that Jesus had some pretty surprising friendships? Right? I mean, Jesus would be friends with uh, the highest in society and the, the lowest in society, right? Jesus would be friends with, um, you know, like religious leaders, and Jesus would be friends with, with lepers. Like, Jesus was constantly doing all this. And then Jesus had some really, really, really questionable or surprising friendships. I mean, he'd be friendships with like career criminals who do things which are not. I mean, Jesus would be friends with tax collectors 
which is basically people that were agents or instruments of oppression to their own people, and Jesus would sit with them and, and, and eat with them and do all of those things. Jesus had some of his closest friends in his inner circle, a guy who was always stealing money, and then there was this other guy who had a sword, and he would just run around and randomly cut off people's ears. And then there was a guy who doubted everything Jesus says, but still incredibly surprising friendships. But the most surprising friendship is a story that we get to learn about in John 4. And I want you guys to go there with me as we talk about this incredible beauty and the power of leaning into surprising friendships. Now, now listen, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not talking about shady friendships, right? I'm not talking about everyone has those friendships which we used to have maybe back in the day, which are as crooked as a ghetto tattoo. No, I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about the surprising friendships which are wholesome, not just to us, but to the people around us, right? And those are what I'm talking about as we go into John 4. Let me read it with you guys. So he left Judea, it's talking about Jesus, and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria, all right? The moment I read that, the Bible nerd in me, the Bible school, I was like, wait, wait, that is bad geography. Because because check this out. I'm about to bust a a map on you guys. Look at this, right? Because when you look at it, Judea's over there, right? And Galilee's over there. And the straightest path, like me explaining something to my wife, is straight through. From point A to point B, it's clear, right? But the Jews would always go around. They would take the long way around because they didn't want to go through Samaria because they regarded the Samaritans as uh, unclean people, basically. So they would always go either on one side or on the other side. So Jesus, we see Jesus doing something very unorthodox for any Jewish rabbi, and he cuts straight through Samaria, straight through the inconvenient place, straight through the unorthodox place to encounter somebody. He goes through Samaria to encounter somebody. So he came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water. The moment I I read that, I was like, oh, that's, that's two red flags. That's two Samarias right there. Because for a rabbi to talk to a woman was something that was not done. So Jesus, we see Jesus crossing his first Samaria, which is gender, to literally talk to this woman. And then the next thing it says, a Samaritan woman. That's the double thing. Talking to women as a rabbi is one thing. But then talking to Samaritans? No, no, that, that never happens. Because remember, the Jews had absolutely no dealing with the Samaritans at all. But we see Jesus once again leaning past convenience into conviction and having an encounter with this woman. And then here's what it says. And Jesus said to her, "Uh uh-oh, he's talking to her. Don't do that, Rabbi. Give me a drink. And the moment I read this, I was like, okay, this is... Because listen, the Jews could not break bread with the Samaritans. Why is that? Because they were a ceremonially clean people. So if you broke bread or touched like a cup or a plate that had been touched by someone who was unclean, then you couldn't be in the social order. You had to go outside the camp and stay for seven days, and it would cost you like uh, lambs and, 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 and turtle doves and all of those things. So in all honesty, this would have been from any other objective measure very irresponsible for a rabbi 
to talk to a woman, to talk to a Samaritan woman, but more than that, to then ask for a drink from a Samaritan woman. So we see Jesus, who had no business doing this, going through three Samarias, and I'm saying this metaphorically to represent the things which you should not do, the place of inconvenience that we go into to have this encounter. But how many of you guys know that the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus always meets us in the hard places? Jesus never takes the path of convenience with us. And we see it coming here. And so, long story, I don't have time to really get into this narrative, but what happens is Jesus leans into this, has this conversation with this woman, and it goes deep pretty quick. And then he talks to all of her insecurities. And then she is so blown away by the things that he knows about her. She runs into the city and tells him, hey, come and see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they're all blown away. So they invite Jesus into the city. And then Jesus shows up, and then he preaches the gospel, and the entire city is saved. And all of this simply because Jesus leans into a surprising friendship. What could God do for us and for them through us if we lean into surprising friendships? And now I know you guys are like, okay, you're making your point, right? Because that's what I would be saying. You're making your point. But the truth of the matter is I'm not as extroverted as you are, or I'm not, uh, I don't have the woo, or I don't just step into every room and immediately the room's right there with me. I struggle maybe with social anxiety, or I struggle to make friends, or maybe in my past there's been so much rejection that I just don't know what to do when I get there. Well, I'm glad you asked, right? In my head you asked. Because I have three practical things to tell you on how we can essentially come into these surprising friendships. And I think the first thing is set or sit at surprising tables. That's the thing. Find them, sit at them. If you can't find them, set them. Surprising tables. We glean this from the story. Now, now I know you guys are like, uh, what table? What are you talking about? Here they sit at the well. So in this day and age, the well was the center of all social interactions. People would essentially come and meet at the well. That's where the women would gather. That's where some affairs. So if you were to think of a social hub for their day and age, it was the well. But for us, obviously, we don't gather around wells. Where we gather is around tables. And the table in our day and age has become context, uh, has become synonymous with acceptance. Oh, you know the feeling of sitting at a table that celebrates you. You know what it's like to come and sit in a place to where the moment you show up, everybody's like, hey, come over here and sit with us. Whether you're in middle school or whatever it is, we know the beauty and the power and the warmth of being welcomed at a table, right? We all want to go where everybody knows our name. Come on, somebody, right? <laughs> sit at those particular tables. But then the table is also synonymous for contribution, right? A place where your voice is heard. A place where your contribution, regardless of your context, is welcomed. Where your diversity is celebrated. Because, hey, whenever people talk about, I say that because whenever people talk about your opinion having value, they're like, hey, we want you at the table. We brought them to the table. Because important things happen at the table. Decisions happen at the table. Celebration happens around the context of the table. But also the hardest things happen at tables. Jesus 
in the most challenging epoch of his ministry, when he's about to die and he knows the pain that's going to happen and all this weight, what does it do? He sets a table and he invites all his friends and they sit down there and he gets to offload his deepest, deepest, deepest lessons. He's just like, hey, come on, let's gather around the table. Why? Because we all need a table. The power, not of friends and their presence, but friends and their presence. The power of the table. Whenever people have a table, hey, I, it's one of those. And for me, why this hit me as deeply as it did is because I'm going to introduce you to my third friend, and his name is Ray Hogan. Now, I'm not going to show you guys a picture of Ray Hogan because I don't have a picture of Ray, of Ray Hogan because Ray Hogan doesn't take pictures. So if you were to go to ChatGPT and say, hey, can you come up with a picture of Ray Hogan? It would look like something of a mix between Yosemite Sam and Chuck Norris, okay? Ray Hogan, Pastor Ray Hogan, my first pastor, was a man's man. He had a handlebar mustache and he had a giant beard. Uh, Ray Hogan never cried. He just watered that beard with his tears. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, he was born in Kentucky, but he was forged in Texas. I mean, this man loved God and Hulk Hogan. He, was, he tried to get me into wrestling, and I couldn't. I could never understand wrestling. Because for me, the logic never made sense. Why are two guys without pants fighting for a belt. So I was just like, forget that. But, but Ray Hogan was one of those people, like he just loved all those things. So one time he invites me, he's like, hey, Sabanda, let's go to a potluck. I'm like, uh, what's a potluck? Or he's like, oh, it's very simple. It's where people all bring different food and everything and they all come together and you get to eat. First of all, I love food, y'all. My favorite food is free food. I think on my, on, on my tombstone, it's going to say where the food was free, there he would be. You know what I'm talking about? And so it's one of those. So the, he had me at free food. As a matter of fact, the reason I'm a Christian is when they were witnessing to me, I was like, okay, how does the whole thing end? And they were like, oh, it ends with a giant potluck. I was like, I'm in. Come on, somebody, right? Because I love what food does. As a matter of fact, do you know that it's hard to hate people if you love their food? I dare all of you right now. Try it. Try it right now. Try to hate Chick-fil-A. I dare you to. It's impossible. Why? Because they make good food. And so that's what he's talking about. He's like, everybody brings their food and you eat it for free. And he had me until the for free moment because then I was like, hmm, I don't know about this. And so you could see my hesitation. And so in that moment, he's like, wait, wait, wait. You're not a vegan, are you? I'm like, what's a vegan? I'm like, oh, no, no, no. I'm not a vegan. I'm Baptist and everything. I was like, I was like what's a vegan? And he's like, oh, a vegan is a group of people that don't eat meat. I'm like, wait, what? He's like, yeah. I was like, so you're talking about like food atheists? He was like, yeah, that's what, that, that, that's what we get, vegans are. Are you, are you? I was like, oh, you know what? We have a phrase for vegans in Zulu, right? You know what we call vegans? Lousy hunter, you know? <laughs> we all know those people, you know? It's like, hey, Vinny the vegan, you know what I'm saying? He's like, and he's like, missed it by that much. All right, boys, we're eating weeds again for dinner. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, he's like, I am a vegan. So Ray Hogan asked me, he's like, are you coming? To, are you vegan or not? I'm like, oh, kale, no. I'm not a vegan. Now, listen, don't come at me, all right? I love vegans. You know, my wife is a vegan occasionally. She eats salads, and she makes me eat them when she wants to punish me. And hey, don't get it. I love animals, so don't get me in trouble. I love animals, y'all. I mean, I love them deep fried. I love them grilled. I love, <laughs> I love, 
But anyways, so he invites me to this potluck, and I promise you it is the most kingdom thing that I've ever seen in my life. There's people from every race and every culture, and they're showing up, and people are sitting at a table, and everybody's eating, and when you eat somebody's food and you like it, everybody's exchanging recipes. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is the most beautiful show of diversity that I've ever seen in my life. Because if you think about it, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but I come from Zimbabwe, and everybody in Zimbabwe looks like me, okay? So there was no diversity there. But this is the first time I'm coming and I'm seeing the beauty of why it's called the United States of America to where when we all have something that we believe in and this moment it was food and the kingdom and church, then we all come together and then you see the beautiful aspects of diversity. Then you begin to see that what connects us is more powerful and more important than that which sets us apart. So I'm sitting at this table and I'm like, oh my goodness, now I see because that table becomes a table of joy and becomes a table of peace. And right there in that moment, I start to form conversations and friendships, surprising friendships across every socioeconomic, cultural lines and everything. And I'm like, that is the power of the table. And my challenge to you is sit at surprising tables. Be present in those tables. And you will see the incredible things that God does. Now, I know, once again, I'm going to help you out because people are like, yeah, but I see what you're saying, but what do I do when I get to those tables? You know what I'm saying? Because now I'm sitting here because you sent me here, and now I just feel awkward. And here, I want to set you free with this next statement right here, and I want you to write it down if you can't. Here it is, the most profound thing ever. You ready? Ask dumb questions. I give you complete freedom to ask dumb questions. And here's why. I don't know about you guys, but hey, every time I'm about to enter into a social setting that I'm uncomfortable with, the one thing on my mind is, man, I, I don't want to offend them with, with I don't want to seem dumb. I don't want to offend them with dumb questions. I don't want to say anything dumb. How many of you guys are, are, are that way as well, right? All of us are just like, man, I don't want to interact with them because I don't want to ask dumb questions. And I am putting you at complete ease to ask dumb questions. And here was where this comes from. I, I, I wanted to be an engineer, but I failed math. I mean, you can see that's why I'm over here preaching the gospel. No, I'm kidding, right? But, but I failed math because our teacher used to think he was something of a comedian. So every single time he would explain a very complex thing. At the end of it, he was like, all right. His name was Mr. Moyo. Now it's time for questions. Remember, there is no such thing as a stupid question. There are only stupid people asking questions. <laughs> and he would just crack up and laugh. And he must have thought it was funny. And maybe it was funny, but what it did is... It fostered a culture to where we became afraid of asking questions. And because of that, we could never learn. And so I kept failing. And I remember I went to my mom and I was like, um, I don't want to be an engineer anymore. Hey, can I do art? My mom's an African parent. And you don't go to African parents and tell them you want to do art. Because African parents want you to be a doctor or a lawyer, an engineer, or something that they call respectable. Basically, it's a return on investment. That's what they're talking about. So I'm like, no, I want to do art. She's like, listen, um, the only way an African gets recognized for art is if you do African cave paintings, and that ship has sailed. So what's really going on? And that's when I told her, I was like, man, our teacher always makes us feel dumb for asking questions. And she says something which completely changed. She's like, oh, you don't understand. Leaders ask dumb questions. And she's a woman of the word. She's like, if you look at every story in the Bible, every revelation that we have, about Jesus is because somebody asked a dumb question. How do we know that we get a hundredfold in this life? It's because Peter asked a dumb question. 
How do we know specific things? It's because Thomas asked the dumb question. How do we know? But every single time, you guys know what I'm talking about, to where you're in a room, you're incredibly self-conscious, and then somebody just goes, hey, I don't know what you're talking about. Can I do this? And the moment the entire room goes, they're like, hey, I'm with that guy. I wasn't going to say anything, but I'm with that guy. So, hey, I want you to have complete freedom to ask the dumb questions. Here's a statement for you, a stat for you. Jesus asked, when you look at the gospel, 307 questions. He was asked 183 questions, and he only answered eight questions. 307 questions, only answered eight. You know, if it was me and I was the son of God and had infinite knowledge, you know how many questions you, I ask, I'm answering? 310 plus extra credit, so you know that I know. But it's almost like what he was showing us is that it's more important to ask questions because questions create this context of intimacy where you can dance with them and they can dance with you. And in that moment, you leave knowing that you were seeing this. I like, uh, there's a Zulu saying, it says, you can tell a man's intelligence by the answers he gives, but his wisdom by the questions that he asks. So like Walt Whitman said, be curious, not judgmental. Show up and pre preface every conversation with, hey, I know nothing about this, but hey, can I ask you some dumb questions? You will see how it opens you up in those particular spaces. And the last thing I want to say is, when you get to those spaces, bring your authentic self. Have you ever noticed that as humans, we're always drawn to the gravity and the freedom of people's authenticity? Have you ever been at a party and it's all a bunch of Enneagram ones and threes and they're plotting out to take over the world and then someone just shows up with completely no regard for their dignity and they start dancing and before you know it, it truly becomes a party? Why, it's the same thing that we see in Romans 8. It says creation is groaning because it's waiting to find the full expression of its freedom in the glorious liberty of the sons of God. I know one of our core fears as humanity, it's in all of us, it's in me in every social interaction, is rejection. We don't want to be rejected in these spaces. But people have a hard time rejecting authenticity. And you'd rather be accepted for who you truly are than loved for who you're not. Because then in that interaction, you always feel like that you have the imposter syndrome. We respond to authenticity. And when you show Bring your authentic self, like that woman at the well. And when you allow yourselves to ask dumb questions, there's a lot of questions going back and forth. Hey, can I have water? You know we don't do water and everything. Just going back and forth. But you know what? It goes so deep because authenticity unlocks depth. And that is the first moment that Jesus reveals to another human being that he is the Messiah. And we see all of these incredible things because this woman brought authenticity. So have no fear to launch into the discomfort because that's where Jesus meets you and that person. Wade into the complexity of sitting at tables that maybe you don't initially feel welcomed in. Bring in your questions, bring your authenticity because at the end of it, you will be surprised by the power of those surprising friendships. The truth of the matter is um, I've been talking about what it does for us, and that's beautiful because it does incredible things for us. But the most important thing we learned from this story is what it did for the other person. We let our insecurities stop us from reaching out 
not knowing that maybe we are the person that God wanted to use to be a blessing to that other person. And the truth of this story is after this, even after Jesus left, church history talks about how this woman became one of the most prominent evangelists in that region and she went from town to town telling the story of this surprising friendship of this man who stepped into her pain and into her brokenness and forced a surprising friendship with her because the truth of the matter is we're all the product of a surprising friendship a God creator of the universe God of all glory lays it all down, becomes a carpenter's son, goes through the Samaria of our brokenness, sets a table in the presence of our enemies and just sits with us. And that's the most beautiful thing about this. Jesus wants to be friends with us. A God who wants to come and sit with us. Because if you've never had a friend sit with you through brokenness, you don't know the power of what that looks like. And maybe that thing that you're craving, that friend is on the other side of your Samaria, of your brokenness. And so if you're in this room, or wherever you are within the sound of my voice, I want to tell you that Jesus is the one that came up with this idea. He says, hey, no longer do I call you servants, but from now on I call you friends he wants to be your friend he wants to sit with you in your brokenness oh Jesus would do it all the time he wants to celebrate with you Jesus would go to weddings he would sit with people he'd weep with people because he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother and if you have never experienced that friendship you are not okay because so many times, I used to do it before I met the Lord. I'm like, oh, I'm fine. I'm okay. I'm good. You're not. And you will only know this on the other side of that friendship. So I'd love to invite you into a moment to where you make Jesus a surprising friendship that redeems the rest of the relationships in your life. And he's waiting. He's been waiting before the foundations of time to be a good friend to you. And if you're in this room and you're like, you know what? I know the friends I've had, or I know that I've been a bad friend to people. And I, I want to give this thing a try. If that's you, I'd love to walk you through a very simple prayer. The Bible says if you believe in your heart that Jesus died for you, and you just say it with your mouth, then he will enter into the place of your brokenness. That's what Revelation says. He will knock and he will come and he will sit down with you and he will form a lasting friendship, a friend that will never abandon you. And if that's you, I just want you to say a simple prayer with me. And if you don't mind, if you're in this room in solidarity with our brothers and sisters and our friends who are making this decision, I'd love for all of us to just close our eyes just so they feel comfortable in this space. And I just want you to close your eyes and... Uh, just repeat this simple prayer, prayer after me. Just say, Lord Jesus, I've missed it. I've walked in ways which I know are not pleasing to you and they haven't brought me any peace. I have sinned and I've missed the mark of a life lived in friendship with you. So right now I just pray 
that you'd come into my heart and take my life and be my friend. I give you everything that I am. And for the rest of my life, I want to walk in this friendship with you. Thank you for Jesus for coming into, thank you Jesus for coming into my heart. And thank you Jesus for taking over my life. And thank you for being my friend in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, come on. The Bible says right now in heaven, there is a giant potluck being thrown in celebration of the people that have just made that decision. And if you have, uh, Pastor Katie will come up and afterwards and just give you some next steps. But welcome to the family. And man, as I close, I just want to speak to the rest of us in this room right now. And everybody listening to the sound of my voice and I say, hey, hey, what's your Samaria? What is the one thing that is keeping you from really leaning into the surprising friendships in your life that God has ordained and sent your way that could be the blessing in your life? I know for some of us it's maybe just the awkward things, the social interactions, or, or maybe it's fear, or, you know, or maybe it's just things like that. And I want you to know that the Spirit of God is here in this moment, and He wants to navigate those things with you. And maybe for some of us it's the deeper things. Maybe we've been hurt by friends. Maybe for some of us there's something deeper that God just needs to go in there that none of us need to know about except you and the Holy Spirit. But that thing is your Samaria, and it's keeping you from what could potentially be a surprising friendship that changes the rest of your life. And, and, and if that's you in this room, I'd just like to pray over you as the Holy Spirit just begins to work in your heart. Lean into your Samaria because on the other end of it is an incredible and surprising friendship. Let's pray. Father, I just come before and I thank you for my friends and my brothers and my sisters in this room. And Lord, I just pray that I know that there's some areas of hurt and bitterness and brokenness and fear and rejection, but you are above all those things. And the power of your acceptance is stronger than any rejection. So I pray that you'd need hearts with my friends and brothers in this room, that they would look beyond what separates us into the beautiful things that await on the other side of surprising friendships. Holy Spirit, Spirit of unity, Unite hearts to hearts and help us as we once again redeem the lost art of friendship and lean into surprising friendships. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekend message from Saddleback Church. If you like this, please consider leaving a rating or review for this podcast. The Saddleback Church Weekend Message Podcast is a part of the Saddleback family of podcasts. Visit Saddleback.com slash podcasts or search for Saddleback Church in your favorite podcasting app to see more great podcasts from Saddleback. For more weekend message resources, visit Saddleback.com slash message resources.